0: Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, Loving Jesus by Loving People. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. All right, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1246 in that Bible. It's my wife's birthday today as well, by the way. It's Sarah's birthday. And what better way to celebrate my wife than talking about hell here on a Sunday morning. We are in a little mini-series that we are calling Exploring Hell. And uh, as we started it last week, we said this is not light, fluffy stuff. This is actually pretty deep stuff. This can be pretty intense stuff. And uh, there is probably no area of, of scripture or theology that I get asked more questions about than hell. And so we thought, why don't we take a few weeks and we'll just dig into it a few weeks, and what does the Bible say about it, and uh, looking at you know some tough questions that get raised when it comes to hell, and how could a loving God uh, sentence people to burn in hell for eternity, and why did God even create hell if that was a possibility for us, and how can a just God uh, punish people for all eternity for things that were committed uh, in a relatively short lifetime, and, and all of these questions that get raised and different views that Christians have had about hell over 2,000 years of church history we want to jump into all of it a little bit. And uh, we said last week, we might not solve all of it, but we just want to at least engage with it. And even as tough questions get raised, and uh, and some of the aspects of this are difficult to uh, understand, maybe logically or philosophically, ultimately, we want to get to what does the Bible say, right? That always has to be uh, our final authority, our final word. And so we want to uh, really dig into some scripture and explore that there. So uh, if you miss one, because we are in summertime and there's holidays, I would really encourage you to catch up. Uh, all of our sermons go up online, uh, usually on Monday, and you can listen to that audio. on audio. We also have video recording now for our sermon, so you could watch it as well. And so if you miss one, uh, the four weeks that we're spending on this all kind of connect together. And if you only pick up one and miss the other three or two uh, or whatever, uh, it might be a bit hard to get the point of the whole series. So certainly encourage you uh, to catch up if you have to miss one. When I was a teenager, I grew up in Burlington, Ontario, and I grew up Pentecostal, attending Pentecostal churches, and uh, when I was a teenager, we were attending a church called Glad Tidings in Burlington, and uh, wonderful church, wonderful pastors, wonderful people, uh, and as we were there, a production came in on a Sunday night, and it was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Has anyone ever seen that or been a part of that? Uh, so uh, it would, So this is still around, uh, so this was 25 years ago or so that I saw it, but this was a production that would go into churches, they would usually do like a Sunday night special service, because our Sunday nights used to be about evangelism primarily, and they, the production would come in, and they had all the sets and the lights and the music and everything, and it was kind of an interesting format, because they would come in, uh, and they would have all of the production part of it, but they would take people from your church and give them the scripts and get them to memorize the lines so your own people would actually kind of put on this production Uh, and so it was kind of an interesting way of doing it and the basic gist of it and i don't know how they do it today but when i saw it was it told the story of jesus it told the story of sin coming into the world and jesus dying for our sins and jesus rising from the dead and jesus sitting on his throne as judge And then from there, there were a bunch of kind of little skits, and in each skit, inevitably, somebody in the skit would die. Uh, so it would be, you know, a bunch of youth in a car, drunk driving, uh, and then they one there would be a crash, and so they would stand before Jesus, and Jesus would come out, and depending on where that person had landed with Jesus in their lives, Jesus would point to this side of the stage if they had served Jesus and followed him, and if that happened, then the choirs of angels would sing, and they would be welcomed into heaven, and if the person had rejected Jesus and had pursued their life in sin, then Jesus would point to the other side of the stage, at which point the devil would come out and grab the person and drag them away. And so there were a bunch of different skits where this got played out, and some of the people went to heaven, and some of the people went to hell, and at the end, the pastor would get up at the end of the production and give a gospel presentation and say, you know, there's this. there's been an artistic element to this, but the truth of it is, is that we want you to go to heaven. We want you to experience life with Jesus. We want you to be transformed. And so uh, we encourage you. And they would share the gospel, and they would give an invitation, and people would hopefully give their lives to Jesus. And it was a very... stark picture of heaven and hell and and just this idea this very real uh kind of heavy and in your face reminder that every one of us at one point will stand before jesus and we will uh be sent one place or the other and when it comes to hell there was something about this uh production that was that was terrifying There was something about it that was scary. It was very much uh, something that shook you up. And I remember even as a teenager, an unsaved teenager, I didn't give my life to Jesus at that production, but I still remember it very well 25 years later. There was something about it that stuck with me and just this dire warning that there is a place that some of us are heading towards that God does not want us to go. God has a better place for us to go. And so there is uh, an important part of the mission of the church that if that is true, that if hell is real, then part of our job is to stand up and shout that hell is real. And what's more important, that you don't have to go there. There is a way out of that place. And that is part of the mission of the church. And so we talked about last week, when it comes to hell, uh, not all Christians agree about the nature of hell, and not all Christians throughout church history have agreed about it. Today we're going to take some time to unpack what we're just calling the classic view of hell, Uh, and is the one, if you have grown up in church or been around church for a while, it's probably the one that you were taught, it is the one that this production certainly uh, encouraged, it's the one that the vast majority of Christians uh, have believed and followed, and that is the view that hell is a place of what theologians call eternal conscious torment. And that's the part that is horrifying as we imagine hell, that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, that it lasts forever, that we are there and awake and experiencing all of it, and it is a place of torture. It is a place of torment, and scripture uses pictures of fire and, and burning sulfur and things that just sound horrific, and there is this idea that uh, that the the body will eventually die, the body will eventually pass away, but the soul is eternal, and so when we die, we we have to go somewhere. God has to put us somewhere. And so if he isn't able to welcome us into heaven, then the only other alternative is that we end up in hell. And the the, the soul which is immortal will experience hell eternally. And so this is not the only view that Christians have had about hell. We'll get to some of the others uh, in the weeks to come. And uh, But we wanted to take some time to unpack the biblical side of this. Is there scripture that backs this up? Uh, is this a valid look at what the Bible has to say? So let's take a look at our text and we're just going to look at a couple of verses uh, as a kind of springboard today and then we'll jump into a bunch more as we go. Revelations chapter 14 verses 9 through 11 page 1246 in the Pew Bible. So starting in verse 9 we are talking about uh, the end in the book of Revelation. End times, final judgment, eternity, and what that will look like. So Uh, judgment is coming upon the earth and we're starting in verse 9 a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand they too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. So that's a yikes passage, right? Like that's one of the the clearest passages. Uh, that we would lean upon in the classic view of hell. Uh, Just this idea that there is torment involved and it apparently will last forever. There will be no end. There will be no rest. Uh, This is something that we will experience for eternity, and it comes as punishment for our sins. And so uh, in the classic view, that's not the only passage we would look at, but that would be a key one for sure. We talked a little bit last week as well about this idea of disputable matters, which Romans 14 unpacks for us, that there can be areas of our theology where loving Christian brothers and sisters who love Jesus and revere Scripture can come to different conclusions uh, based on the same Bible that we we all love and revere. And so we've talked in the past as a church about things like the role of women in leadership, in church life, and uh, people have different opinions about spiritual gifts and what that can look like. And so there are areas where the Bible is maybe not as crystal clear as other areas. And that's not to say that we ever just say, well, whatever, believe whatever you want. We're constantly wrestling through and pursuing truth and, and debating and discussing and working through things as a community. But in Romans 14, Paul talks about So there may be times where you guys disagree on matters of the faith that are not matters of salvation. They're they're lesser uh, matters of the faith, and in that case, you can lovingly agree to disagree without breaking fellowship, without accusing one another of heresy, without being awful to one another. Uh, There is room for that in the Christian faith. And for those of us who say, no, my way's the right way and you're wrong, you don't like what I just said. But there have been areas of church uh, theology throughout history where there hasn't been total agreement. And it's interesting on the area of hell, because for the first few hundred years of church history, there wasn't a clear position about what is the nature of hell about. There was a clear position about God doesn't want you to go there. Jesus comes to save you from it. But there was not a clear, is it eternal? Is it forever? Uh, Like the classic view says, is it a place where we are destroyed? As the annihilationists believe, which we'll get to next week, is it a place where everyone is purified and redeemed, like universalists would say? And we're going to talk about that view too, because that view is coming up a lot in this day and age. And these views are not all equal to one another biblically. Uh, Some of them have humongous problems, but we want to engage with them. because these are the types of things that I get asked about. But the nature of hell for the first few hundred years of church history, uh, the church gave room for some differences of opinions. And the church would get together in what were called councils. And the councils would gather and they would try to sort through, okay, so what do we actually believe about the Trinity? What do we actually believe about Jesus and, and his nature? What do we believe about how you are saved? What do we believe about the nature of the scriptures? And so brilliant pastors and teachers and theologians would gather, and they would debate and discuss, and these councils could last weeks or months or even years, and they would wrestle through Scripture prayerfully, and they would talk, and they would pray together, and they would challenge views, and they would sort it all out. And at the end of these councils, they would issue what we call creeds. So the church would get together and issue, say, the Apostles' Creed. They would wrestle through things, and they would say, okay, this is the statement of faith that we landed on. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, and they would nail down their theological positions as as the church. This is what we believe. And the nature of hell... Doesn't show up in any of the creeds. It wasn't anything that they were wrestling through. They gave one another room that some of us believe that uh, Hell is a place that lasts forever and where you're burned and tortured forever Some believe that hell is a place where you're destroyed and they gave some grace for that And then in the 4th century, St. Augustine rose up. He was one of the great pastors, great teachers, great theologians of church history, and he was incredibly influential, and he said, no, I think the classic view is the right view, and that's dominated our church thinking for most of church history. But before that, there was some grace, and even Augustine, when people would disagree with him on hell, he would say, I have brothers over here uh, who think hell is a place where we're just destroyed, where it's not torment forever. Uh, There very gracious. I need to correct them in their wrong view, but he still calls them brothers. He doesn't say these heretics over here are believing something that's wrong. There is room for disagreement on some of this stuff. So when it comes to the classic view of hell, we've just read one text about it. There are ten kind of classic texts that this viewpoint leans on, and we're going to whip through them really quickly, so if you're taking notes, you're going to be scribbling like crazy, and if you need them, you can email me and I can send you to them after, uh, after the service today. But we've already talked about one in Revelations 14. Here are the other ones that this viewpoint would lean on. A couple of them are Old Testament, Isaiah 66, 22 through 24. "'As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me,' declares the Lord, "'so will your name and descendants endure,' speaking to Israel. "'From one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, "'all mankind will come and bow down before me,' says the Lord. "'And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. "'The worms that eat them will not die. "'The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind.'" And so we talked a little bit last week about the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament, this place where evil had happened and God had promised his judgment. And so what's important about this passage is that Jesus actually quotes it. Jesus refers to it when Jesus is teaching on hell. So there is a bit of an Old Testament picture beginning to point to this idea. Daniel hits on it as well in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, talking about the final judgment, the final resurrection. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some To everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so this idea comes up, and it certainly continues through the New Testament and Revelation, that at the final judgment, there will be a great resurrection. Everyone will rise from the grave. They will stand before Jesus. They will be judged. And Daniel's foreshadowing way ahead of time that some will come to everlasting life, others to shame, and everlasting contempt. There is something about the final judgment that will be eternally bad for those on the wrong side of it. Jesus taught about hell a fair bit. In Matthew 25, he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats, a picture of the righteous and the not righteous. And in the end of the parable, he says to those who are not righteous, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, that there will be some on judgment day who hear those words. And we talked last week, just the reminder, the eternal fire was never prepared for us. It was never meant to be the place that God wanted us to go. It's there for the devil and his angels, for him who rebelled against God and deceived the world and brought us to death and destruction. Hell is for Satan and those who followed Satan. However, God, as he grants us the right to choose the way we go in life, says you can choose who you follow. If you follow Jesus, you will follow him straight down heaven. If you choose to reject that, you will follow the enemy straight to the place prepared for him. And that is the freedom that God has given us. In Matthew chapter, or sorry, Mark chapter 9, uh, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. He's quoting Isaiah that we just read. And so we've talked about this passage before. Jesus is in no way uh, encouraging actual, literal mutilation of your body. He's using an exaggeration, some hyperbole on purpose, to say, deal Radically with the sin in your life. You might need to cut off a relationship. You might need to cut off uh, a pleasure in your life. You might need to cut off something metaphorically in order to live the way that you should live. And so Jesus uh, has a very serious warning about hell for us in here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-9 through nine says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so it's not that every wrong will get righted in this lifetime necessarily, but there will be things that that even as we suffer in this life, even if they're not dealt with in this life, God is just. God will make it right. Justice will come. Justice will happen. And again, there's that word everlasting in there. The destruction there is everlasting. Jude uh, just has one chapter, but Jude verse 7 says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Again, there's that word eternal in there. So in the Old Testament, when God's judgment came on Sodom and Gomorrah, the the word is saying that that's uh, just a taste, that's a foreshadow of this destruction that is coming later it is a a foreshadow of the punishment of eternal fire to come a few verses later uh, in jude verse 13 talking about evil people says they are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved Forever, And so, again, that word forever in there. Almost done, Revelations 14. We just read that passage. I won't read it all again. But this idea uh, that the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. For those who reject Jesus, for those who walk in the ways of evil, for those who follow the enemy, there is a torment that never ends. There's no rest day or night. For Those who go that way there is something eternal and lasting about it revelations chapter 20 verse 10 says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown they will be tormented day and night. Forever and ever. Ongoing, eternal, conscious torment is the picture given there. Revelations 20, last one, uh, verses 14 and 15. Death in Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So those are 10 kind of key verses, and there, are, there may be others as well. But if we're going to lean on the argument biblically, this is what the classic view leans upon. And you start putting them together, and you go, wow. Like, these verses paint a picture. And where the classic view says that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, you look at these verses, and you say, yeah, like, eternal, forever, day and night, never-ending, fire, darkness, torment, Uh, eternal shows up over and over again that that the eternal conscious torment view is horrific to think about but certainly is a reasonable biblical conclusion to come to and it's not the only one as we'll get to in weeks to come but certainly there is solid scripture pointing to that Um, and and this idea of hell of this place of punishment that doesn't end and that is horrifying if you're feeling a little sick right now you should that's good it means you're normal That there's something about this where we go, ha, the picture that Scripture paints of this place is horrific. Sometimes I get asked, uh, are there different levels of hell? Are there different degrees of hell? And there's passages about heaven that seem to suggest that there's maybe different rewards in heaven. There are different levels of reward. Jesus talks about there are seats of honor in heaven that are reserved for some. So there's a suggestion that in terms of heaven there are different levels of reward that we can receive. Uh, does the Bible say the same thing about hell? And I would say it's less clear for sure. Uh, there's a couple of passages where Jesus would be warning a town, and he would say, you know, woe to you, you've rejected the gospel. You've rejected the salvation that God is bringing to you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for you. And so, from that, we might be able to infer that, that there will be worse punishments than others. A lot of this idea of degrees of hell uh, comes from a poem, The Divine Comedy, written by Dante. And this was from the Middle Ages. Dante's Inferno is the first part of it. And Dante's Inferno is this long epic poem where he has allegedly this vision of hell. And he envisioned hell as this place of kind of concentric circles that as he went down level by level, the punishments got worse and worse the closer you got to where the devil was at the very bottom. And so the top level was for uh, the people who had uh, rejected Jesus but had lived pretty good lives, and their punishment wasn't that bad at the bottom was the worst of the worst and so it is revered as uh, this beautiful epic poetry it's taught in literature classes at colleges all over uh, North America certainly in Europe and yet it's not scripture It's not on par with Scripture. What's interesting is as Dante travels through hell in this alleged vision, he does a lot of, uh, as he reaches a level, he'll be like, oh, here's Joe Smith over here. Hey, everybody, remember how Joe Smith disagreed with me in the real world? Well, now he's dead and he's burning in hell. How about that? So he does a lot of of kind of personal vendettas in this. As it turns out, if you gave him trouble in life or if you were in a different political party, you were burning in hell for sure. And so all that just to say, uh, Maybe this is it. Maybe there was an element of truth in it, uh, but it's not Scripture, and we don't hold to Scripture. He wrote it as poetry, and that's where most of our sort of cultural ideas of the circles of hell and things getting worse, uh, those are not laid out clearly in Scripture. A lot of that comes from Dante, and as Dante is writing, there's a lot of Dante in his writing. It's not necessarily the pure spirit of the, uh, spirit of the Lord speaking through him. So when it comes to the classic view, here's what's strong about this Certainly, uh, Lots of scriptural support as we just went through there is scriptural support for this idea It is a solid biblical idea that is undeniable It's also by far the traditional view of all the views of hell this view has been the majority view by far It's been the longest view by far even though there may be different views of hell This has dominated church and that's not always necessarily meaning that it's right um, but we take that pretty seriously when we look at church theology and we look at church history. We say what has, uh, going back as early as we can, what has the church believed? For those who were closest to Jesus, what did they believe? For those who walked with him personally especially, who wrote the scriptures, what did they believe? And we take that seriously. We value tradition in the Christian walk. What has been passed down? It doesn't always mean that it's right. There was a time in the Middle Ages where church tradition was you could buy your way out of hell if you donated to a church building project. And so just because it's traditional doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. But we do put weight on tradition uh, in, in our church theology and our understanding. It holds to this idea of divine justice, and we touched on this in a few of these verses, that God will set right what is wrong. That God, as he is just, has to deal with evil. He has to deal with evil. If he doesn't deal with evil, we can't call him just. If he lets things go, we can't just uh, honor him for his holiness and his justice. And so there is this idea that wrong will be made right. And evil will be dealt with it shows us a God who takes sin seriously last week we showed a video uh, of a man on the street interview where they went down and they just asked people on the street Christian or not uh, what do you think about hell and why is hell there and who goes to hell and it's always interesting the question of who goes to hell because for most people the answer is well people who are worse than me right And so, of course, Hitler's in hell, as he should be, and of course, you know, rapists and the worst people. Uh, But when it comes to our own sin, we don't like to imagine that because we feel like, well, I am pretty good. Uh, I'm not perfect by any means, and even Christians, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But there's other sinners saved by grace who are way worse than I am. And so we don't always take our own sin seriously, and yet the Bible says it's all of our sin that God is dealing with. It's all of our sin that sent him to the cross. And hell, as it exists, as it's pictured in Scripture, is not even necessarily uh, you know, that God is, is in any way uh, you know, wanting people to go there. Because Scripture says God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He wants everybody to come to repentance. He wants everybody to come to heaven. But the nature of our sin isn't even so much about the stuff that we do. It is that. But it is the attitude that we've taken that says, I don't need God. I am not going to go His way. And where God is the source of life, he is the source of, of everything that sustains us. And, and in the Garden of Eden, as he created humanity, he said, walk with me, stay with me, the source of life. Walk with me, and you will live forever. And humanity said, actually, no thanks, I'm going to walk my own way. I will do my own thing. I don't need the source of life. And unfortunately, when we cut ourselves off from the source of life, uh, then we're choosing ourselves The opposite, that if we're cutting ourselves off from the source of the one who sustains us, then hell is what's left. And it's not that God desires or wants us to go there, but we have chosen in one way or another to say, I don't need you. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We have rejected God, the source of life. And when we cut ourselves off from life, hell is what is left on the other side. And so, it's not about who did the worst sin or whatever. It's that we all, in our pride and in our selfishness, in one way or another, have said, God, I don't need you. I don't need your life. And if we have said that, then hell is all that is left for us. And so, this is not, again, light and fluffy stuff. But this classic view of hell uh, raises some issues as well. Theologians sometimes call it the problem of hell. And they're questions we've touched on already. How could a loving and merciful God sentence people to eternal conscious torment? How do we we meld that together? How do we put those two things, the scripture that says over and over again that God is loving? The scripture that says clearly in 1 John, God is love that talks about his mercy. His mercy endures forever. His anger only lasts for a moment, but his mercy is eternal. How do we get this picture of this loving, eternally merciful God, who apparently is not eternally merciful to people in this place of eternal conscious torment? How do we bring those together? And those of us who are parents would say, well, of course you love your kids, and sometimes you're mad at your kids, and sometimes you punish your kids, but even that punishment comes out of your sense of love, right? We need to to shape the character. We need to, to show that there's consequences, but it's not forever. And so how do we put these two pictures together of a God whose Scripture says hundreds of times is merciful, hundreds of times is loving, also being willing to put us in this place where the torment never ends, where the fire never goes out? As well, how could a just God, even if if we look at that first question and say God is loving and merciful, but he is also holy and he is also just, and he has to deal with sin in his justice— But how could a just God allow people to be punished for all eternity for sins committed temporally, for sins committed here on earth? If I'm Hitler for a hundred years here on earth, punishment for all eternity doesn't feel like justice necessarily, right? It feels like a lot worse than justice. If I'm, if I'm the worst of sinners for a hundred years, then maybe a hundred years of punishment is justice. The scales get balanced, but it seems like overkill. Uh, questions get raised of how can we, if we are going to heaven, enjoy heaven if we know that there's eternal conscious torment going on somewhere else. If you have a family member, and I think most of us probably have someone that we've loved where we're maybe not sure where they are now, how can I possibly enjoy the glories of heaven if I know my spouse or my child or my brother or whoever is in this horrific place how can joy exist there knowing that that is going on there as one pastor said how can you have a party in the living room if the basement is on fire and there's people down there So these are tough questions that come up. And because of these tough questions, some Christians have come to other views of the nature of hell, which we're going to touch on, not because we agree with them necessarily, but we want to engage with them. But there's a few good answers to the classic view as we wrestle with these types of questions. And one is, we are very good at ignoring a strongly uh, consistent biblical principle called the wrath of God. And it's something that we almost never preach on. We don't sing about it on a Sunday morning. Uh, when we read it in our Bibles, we tend to whip past it because mercy is more encouraging and love is more uh, fulfilling. But the Bible talks about, in both Testaments, this idea of the wrath of God, the anger of God at our sin, the anger of God at evil. And we all feel that sometimes, Right, You hear about a man who kidnapped a child and did horrific things and ended her life. Our response is anger right? and heartbreak and everything else. But we feel something of, of the wrath of God in that moment. That there is something about that that is absolutely, horrifically wrong and should get dealt with. And so we can get a taste of that as humans, but to look at God himself and just the nature of his purity and his holiness, the God who has given us clear boundaries that we consistently ignore, the God who has given us warnings that we just pretend aren't there, the God who has told us what our end is if we continue in that path and we still ignore it, the God who looks after the innocent and who wants to see people walk in purity, and us as humanity ignore it over and over and over again. Again, as a parent, you can get a taste of anger towards your kids, and it's not because you don't love them, and it's not because you hate them, it's not because you're necessarily even an angry person, but you set boundaries to keep your kids safe, you set boundaries to to create their character, and your kids cross the line on purpose, because that's what kids do, and you can get angry. Now, if we multiply that by the eternal nature, and the eternal holiness, and the eternal purity of God, that if God is holy, he has to hate sin. If God is just, he has to deal with sin. And, and so this idea of the wrath of God that we so easily skip over, that God is loving, he is merciful, but he is not any less holy or any less just, just because he is loving and just because he is merciful. There's a verse in Romans 124. And it's talking about people who were worshiping idols and choosing the sinful path, just continually doing what they shouldn't be doing, continually walking in ways that they shouldn't walk. And Romans 1.24 says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. That there was a point where God warns and he warns and he warns, and then at some point God just says, okay. He gives them over to their sinful desires. He stops warning. He stops trying to pull them back. He stops trying to, to give them a heads up about the consequences. And so uh, the divine judgment of God might not be as much God up here wanting to smack us down. The divine judgment of God might be more God just saying, all right, if you're going to go in that direction, my hands are off now. I've warned you. I've given you the heads up. I've given you scripture. I've given you warnings through Christian. I've given you all the warnings that I can. And if you want to continue in that path of rejecting God and going your own way, I'll give you over to it. Go go for it. And and Romans 1 talks about that as, uh, as judgment. That God's judgment is, I will let you go down the path that you are choosing. Scripture says, God is not mocked. A person reaps what they sow. And so part of God's judgment is, if that's your choice, that's what you'll sow. A person reaps what they sow. Whoever sows to please the sinful nature will reap destruction, Scripture says. Whoever sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life. And so there is an element where God will let us go down the path that we have chosen. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And it's not that anyone would consciously choose hell, but just this idea that for those of us who submit to God, uh, there is a different end for us. And God will eventually say to those who continually reject him over and over and over again, okay, thy will be done. I will give you over to what you want to do, and you will reap your own consequences for how you have lived your life. There is something in this conversation as well of the glory and the sovereignty of God, and we're just about done. But the idea is, as much as we may struggle with how could God punish people for eternity for things committed, you know, in however few years we are. And if we live to be 150, that's still little compared to eternity. So how could God, that doesn't sound just to me. But there is something about submission to the glory and sovereignty of God in this viewpoint that says, ultimately God is God and we are not, and because he is God, he is the one who gets to decide what justice is. And just because it doesn't make sense to us does not necessarily mean that, that God owes us an explanation. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything needs to make sense to us. In the book of Job, Job is suffering, and he's crying out to God, and he's saying, I deserve an answer, Lord. I have been good. I have walked uprightly. I have done everything that I should, and I have all of this suffering happening, and I wish that I could just stand before the Lord and question him and get an answer for why are bad things happening to good people? I deserve an answer. I'm entitled to an answer because I'm a good person. And God shows up at the end of the book of Job and says, Job, I am God, and you you are not, and I don't owe you anything. And that goes against every part of our flesh and every part of our, our logic and, I, and our democracy, right? In democracy, we all deserve answers to everything. We want transparency. But when God shows up to speak to Job, God says, Job, were you there when the foundations of the earth were laid Were you there when creation was exploding and the angels were shouting for joy? Were you there when I divided the water from the land and I put boundaries on the ocean and said, you stop here, your proud waves go no further? Are you there, Job, when the deer in the woods is about to give birth and is counting down until, are you counting down with that mother deer as she is about to give birth? Are you there in that moment Are you storing up the rain and the snow in the storehouses of heaven? Are you sending the lightning bolts down to the earth? And it's so frighteningly stark a reminder where God says, Job, I am God and you are not. And the creation does not have the right to question the creator. Know your place, essentially. I am God and you are not. And so the classic view will lean heavily on that. It doesn't totally make sense, maybe, this idea of justice. It doesn't totally make sense of a loving God, and eternal conscious torment, but it doesn't necessarily need to make sense, because God, as God, gets to define the terms love and mercy and justice and holiness. And so we trust in the glory and sovereignty of God and we trust as Abraham did when judgment was about to fall on Sodom and Gomorrah Abraham said "Uh, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Can I trust God enough that he will do what is right always? Because even if it doesn't make sense to me, he is God and and I am not Now again, there are views in the church that have answered these tough questions in different ways We will get there in the weeks to come. But this classic view of hell is basically this, that God created this beautiful mansion for us to live in, if you can picture that. God created this beautiful place, and we were to live in this place with him forever. And as we lived in this beautiful mansion, God said, don't play with fire. Fire is dangerous. And we said, forget that fire is cool. I'll play with all the fire I want. And we lit the house on fire. We lit the house on fire by ignoring what God told us to do. And so now the place is in flames and the fire is coming down and we are about to go down in this burning fire. The house that we are in is aflame and it is going down. And Jesus has come and kicked a huge hole in the side of the building and said, there's a way out of this burning building. There's a way out of this fire. Follow me, follow me, follow me. We've said before that Jesus, like the Terminator, says, come with me if you want to live. Jesus says, follow me out this door. Follow me, follow me, follow me. I am the way out. And so there is a way offered to us. There is mercy offered to us. There is forgiveness offered to us. Jesus is the way. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That God loved us enough to offer us a way out. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. And that is the call for all of us. And and regardless of where you land on the issue of hell, the gospel message is the same. Jesus says, come with me if you want to live. Follow me. And you won't just follow him in this life. We will follow him in eternity as well. Jesus has provided a way out. We have an email address here at the church, Questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you have any questions, uh, please feel free to email those in. We will answer some of the questions in the weeks to come, probably. Uh, but that email address is always there. And in half an hour, we can barely scratch the surface of this stuff. So I encourage you, by all means, look to the scriptures yourself. Do some research yourself. Uh, talk about it amongst yourselves. Talk about it with me, if that will be helpful. But this classic view of hell which again is not the only view, but this classic view, certainly biblically solid, certainly traditionally what the church has believed. If it is true, then it should be challenging to us In terms of if we are following Jesus, if we know where we're going, if we have gotten out of the building that's on fire, and we know where we're at with him, if we know that, we have an obligation that there are people in our lives who are still in the building that's on fire. We have an obligation. How could we not? We talked last week about Penn Gillette, the atheist, saying, how much do you have to hate a person to believe they're going to hell and not do anything about it whatsoever? We know the way out. We know the way. And we have to look at the people in our lives who don't know the way yet or haven't heard about the way. We have to call out to them and say, follow come follow Jesus. He is the way out. They might not listen. They might ignore us. If that's the case, so be it. But our job is to call out that there is a way out, that Jesus, because he loves us, has offered us a way out. This is the God who, even if we struggle with the nature of hell and the nature of God and the nature of justice and mercy and love, what is undeniable is that he has offered the solution either way. He has offered the solution for how we get out of here. This is the God that we serve. We're going to spend some time in worship and then we'll pray to wrap up. I'll ask you to stand to your feet, please, with us. The words will be up on the screen.